the timing is almost always wrong to have kids, to go on vacation, to make a huge change in your life. There's never going to be like the clouds part and you have all the things are lined up and everyone's like, welcome to the next big stage of your life. This is exactly <laughs> how you do it. You know, so sometimes you just have to leap. Welcome to No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis. Each week we're talking to women playing at the top of their game. So how are they doing it? Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. Anne Fullenwider, Editor-in-Chief of Marie Claire Magazine. Welcome to No Limits. Thank you so much, Rebecca. I'm so thrilled to be here. I need to make sure I get one thing out of the way very first. Is it Marie Claire, Mary Claire? How do you say it? Well, so everyone asks me this. My answer is... It's whatever you want it to be, <laughs> but I pronounce it somewhat like a bastardized version of the French word, which is Marie Claire. Marie Claire. Yes. Okay. In France, it would be Marie Claire. <laughs> so something like that. You're going back to your Paris Review roots right now. Yes, exactly. Which was one of your first jobs out of college. Yeah. So and, straight, and sadly, I got to the Paris Review when it was relocated to New York City. But it was a beautiful, wonderful literary magazine started by George Plimpton and his pals in Paris in the 50s. And... Um, I was his assistant and I was his, I literally like answered his phones. I typed his letters on a typewriter and I'm not actually that old. It's just that he hung on to this beautiful typewriter and um, it was a really fun first job in New York. That was, so you're at school at Harvard at yes. the time when you applied for this job. Yes. So I took a slightly circuitous route to graduate. I graduated, I basically finished school in January, took an extra half term. And um, and then I had this sort of period where I had to hang out and do nothing but take exams in June. And my grandmother said, well, why don't you, you're welcome to come stay in my back room in my apartment in New York City. And I was literally there in like six hours. <laughs> was was New York City always the dream? Because you, you grew up in the Northeast. You grew yes. up in Massachusetts. Yes. So was that always something in the back of your mind you wanted to be here and you wanted to potentially be in the magazine industry? I was actually born in Manhattan. I'm very proud to say. Okay. Uh, my parents were, had gotten married here. And New York was always this glamorous place that I was almost part of. I mean, my parents moved out when I was one year old. It was the 70s. New York was, I guess, more dangerous. They were going through an economic downturn. Anyway, so my mother really never recovered from leaving New York City. She always talked about how she was a New Yorker. She was a New Yorker. In New York, mm. And we would go down at any excuse to see family. And it did always seem extremely glamorous. And I definitely always wanted to be in magazines. It's really the way that I've always interpreted the world. I mean, I was editor-in-chief of my high school newspaper. I, um... <laughs> Me too. Were you? Yeah, I loved it. It was, oh I really, it was such a big deal to be able to do that back then. Yeah. And you know what's funny is I went back to my high school recently and talked about what a meaningful position that was at the time when I was a senior in high school. They don't have the high school newspaper anymore. What? I couldn't believe what it. What happened to it? Well, so I said, well, what happened? Exactly. I was, I was really upset. I, every me- I went back as like an alumni to talk to people right. about media, et cetera. And I said, regardless of what form it takes, you really need to sure. revive that. Because one of the things that helped me is that when I went out into the world, I spoke with other people who had been editor-in-chief of my high school newspaper. And it was a really good networking tool. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that, you know... I don't love the word networking. I think it sounds a little too cagey or inauthentic, but it's just a really useful way to connect to people. Mm-hmm. Of, of, you know, even you and I can sit here and talk about being our editors, editors of our high school newspaper. It's a good point. 
because you brought it up, this whole idea of networking, and I think about your world, you are connected to so many different types of people, and they're the kind of people that we read about in your magazine. Um, They're the kind of people you see on television. When you were early on getting started, how did you build the network and community of people that you needed to know in order to get to this position you're in today? I think that, I mean, I'm really actually naturally a shy person. And one of my default modes of how to, if I'm in an uncomfortable situation or just slightly awkward, I don't know somebody, is I just ask questions. Mm-hmm. It's a very useful tool. Curiosity. Curiosity. And even if I'm not curious about the person, I usually can find <laughs> something that I'm, you know, I've always said, like, even if I have to go out to lunch with so many people, my job is very social. And I've met so many fabulous, fascinating people. Once in a while, you meet someone who's not the most fascinating person. But I always think to myself, okay, well, what can I get out of this conversation that's that? What can I take away from this conversation or what can I ask this person that will help me or be meaningful to me? You know, I think every single conversation you have can be interesting if you try. Do you have a go-to question or or a go-to group of questions? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking maybe with the boring people, you ask everybody the same thing. I certainly asked, like, where are you from? Where did you grow up? How did it... You know, how'd you get to where you are? These kinds of, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're asking me these questions because I'm really boring. <laughs> no, not in the slightest. You're fascinating. And you've had, I, I look back at your career. So you you started at the Paris Review. You eventually ended up at Brides Magazine. Mm-hmm. Were you really into the <laughs> wedding industry when you went there? No, it's um, the strangest nine months of my career trajectory, I think. Really? Although it was the most useful and the, in many ways, the hardest. Um, so, you know, I went, I spent 10 years at Vanity Fair. I thought that I would never leave Vanity Fair. Many people have not left Vanity Fair. It's a great place. To, it's a wonderful institution. And it's the place for a, a lot of people. It's a great, great place. Yeah. Um, and I happened to get this really interesting job interview to go over to be the executive editor at Mary Claire. Long story short, I took that. I was there for two years. And as the number two there, I got to really see what it was like to be an editor in chief. And I thought, that looks like really a great job. I want my next job to be editor-in-chief of a magazine. So I had let that, I sort of put that out into the universe, sort of casually talked to people about it, asked questions, looked around. And I got this call from Condé Nast saying, we have an editor-in-chief job open. We're not telling you what it is, but come and talk to us. So three interviews later. By the way, when they said that, were you apprehensive about going in for the meeting? Because what if they're going to tell you it's at some place you just don't care about at all? And then if you pass on it, what does that mean for your next thing? No, I didn't think that way at all. Okay. I really didn't. I just what thought, did, what did cool. You think? cool. I think I'm an optimist. I was like, great. They would probably want me to edit the best magazine. I mean, I just sort of, <laughs> I started thinking like, well, maybe it's this one or maybe it's this one. Um, so I was really excited to go and talk about talk about. It never occurred to me that they would offer that. I didn't even really think about the Brides magazine. However, I had gotten married, so I had I knew what a wedding was. I'd been to one. I'd organized one. Um, so when they finally let me know what it was, I thought, huh, well, that's not what I thought it was going to be. But this is certainly a subject matter that I'm not, you know, that I know well, that I'm not intimidated by, that I certainly can handle. And it might be a really great way to learn how to be editor-in-chief. They also were Mm. telling me that they wanted me to merge the print and digital teams at that time. So I thought that would be an amazing experience just to get more digital experience. This was, what, six years ago? Um, So, I mean, I was a little apprehensive. I was like, oh, huh, brides. But the thing is, it was an amazing – Condé Nast is an amazing company. I had been there before, and I really wanted to – 
try being editor-in-chief. And I thought, actually, this is a perfect way to do it because it's not um, – I don't know. It's not like the New York Times or something. This is you know going to be sort of fun and we'll figure out cakes and flowers and dresses as we go. And you have the ability to learn as you go and, and see how Absolutely. things operate and work in an environment that – is not the New York Times environment. Right. If I'm getting sort of what you're I just thought, okay, this is, the subject matter is manageable. You know, I'm, so I can learn the skills and I can learn about digital and I can learn about, um, you know, being an editor, the first editor-in-chief job from what, you know, from my experience and from many people I've spoken to is a huge responsibility. It's a big deal. You have, all of a sudden you're much more public facing. You have to deal with advertisers, which on the edit side, as you go up through journalism, you really never deal with that part of it. You have to deal with corporate. You know, I, in that case, was merging two teams who had never met before. There's so much other stuff besides the actual subject matter that comes with the territory that I was sort of like, great. So the subject matter is not going to be a steep climb for me. Mm -hmm. Everything else will be. And it was. And it was really, really intense nine months um, and I felt like I was just getting the hang of it. And I got this call from Hearst and they said, listen, there's going to be an opening at the top of Mary Claire. And I thought, huh, there is. And again, they're like, yep, we'll tell you about it later. Lots of hush hush about this. And um, is that how it works in the industry? No one really wants to until like you're really on board. They don't want to tell you what you're on board for. I think it's more that unless there's a big obvious public, it's, you know, they're public jobs, right? They're public. Yeah. They're you're in a bit of the public eye. You're not, you know, in the cover. They have to be careful because there might be somebody else in that role. There's yes. delicacies to be yes, done. Yes, there's yeah. just some delicacies. So in both cases, there were already people in that role. In one instance, that person was being asked to leave, and in another instance, that person was getting promoted or given to another magazine or whatever. So it is sort of because it's in the public eye. I'm sure you guys deal with this all the time. Uh, some 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 confidentiality about mm-hmm. some of the maneuvers. Yeah. It's, I mean, I'm always fascinated when I hear about how other industries operate from the inside out. Yeah. And I look at your your choices along the way, and you made some really big and bold choices, like the one to go to Brides from Vanity Fair. Have you sought the advice of one particular person, or do you have like a board of directors? A lot of people will talk about how they have a group of people that they go to with all of these big decisions. Have you done that along the way? Uh, you know, I, I actually think once in a while that I should gather a few more board of directors. I sometimes I've flown solo and, you know, it's nice to have some advice givers, especially from other industries, I would say. Um, mm-hmm. But so we talk a lot about mentors in, my, in, in Mary Claire. And I think that from what I hear, they can be really, really valuable. I've never really had one or never thought that I had one. I had more role models um, than mentors. But it's recently occurred to me that there is someone, one or two people that I always, always check in on, uh, check in with, sorry, for career advice. And it finally dawned on me like, oh, that's a mentor. But you know what's great? I think the fact that you didn't necessarily know that or that you didn't necessarily consider them a mentor. Everybody always says, find a mentor. And my dad used to say that to me all the time as a kid, like whatever you do, make sure you find a mentor. And it stressed me out. Um, I'm so interested to hear you say that because no one when I was growing up said, find a mentor. It Mm. just wasn't, I don't know, my parents were great parents. They you know, still, I'm still very close to my dad, but uh, they never gave me career advice at all, ever. In fact, sometimes I'm like, huh, that could have been helpful. But so <laughs> I. Did you um, ever tell them what you wanted to do? When you were a kid, did you talk about dreams and certain jobs that were your dream jobs? Yes. I think somehow, I sort of feel like I just was born with this idea in my head that I was going to be editor or journalist and I wanted to be editor of a newspaper or a magazine. What made you want to do it as a kid? What was attractive to you about that? I just loved magazines. I really loved them. And they were so, uh, they were the way that I 
viewed and interpreted the culture. They've sort of meant everything to me. Um, I went away to boarding school, and when people got their magazines in their mailboxes, we were in the middle of nowhere. It was like civilization was coming to us. I mean, it was just something I always thought was glamorous. But even even just the journalist bug I had from the very beginning, I feel like it just sort of, there's like a Latin word for when you just arrive fully formed with an idea. I don't know. That's That's how it feels. So I feel like my parents kind of already knew that I wanted to do this. It was just always there. So I guess... I guess, um, I don't know. I think that the mentor thing, I found out about it late in life. And it just was not a foreign idea to me, but just not something that I never really wanted to bother anyone. Mm -hmm. And um, do you think now in your role as editor in chief, do you feel like done right that that is a bother? I wish on some levels that I knew then what I know now, which is if somebody comes prepared and if somebody really cares and is a really valuable player on the team, I'm never going to consider them a bother right. for knocking on my office door. I mean, sometimes the time isn't necessarily going to happen right then and there. Right. But I love ambition and I love seeing it in other people, especially when they're really willing to go above and beyond. So it's not really a bother. No, not remotely. Um, I think that the... But it's hard to know that earlier in life when you're the one who's coming up and you think, I don't know, should I talk to this person at this party or should I go into this person's office because am I just going to annoy them? Yeah. going to waste their time? I mean, I definitely wish I had more confidence all around as I was coming up. But I certainly, I just interviewed a 22-year-old woman who's just graduated from college. Um, It was, you know, someone's, someone's daughter like a favor to a favor to a friend or whatever. And this happens all the time. And mm-hmm. I'm usually generally open to it. I certainly got in the door that way many times. Um, and I had, I, she was amazing. She was so smart. She was so with it. She was so eager to do stuff. And she was like, she knew what she wanted to do. And I actually felt like it was such a pleasure to talk to her. I know she's gonna, I'm happy to introduce her to people. Um, and that is certainly something I never would have thought of had I been in her position. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I think... I think the whole thing about – people always ask me like, oh, you know, did you have any mentors and how do you feel about ne- networking? And I just really like to think of it as much more sort of not necessarily making friends but really just genuinely making connections. and Genuine relationships. Yeah. 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 I and mean, I'm not – I never really think of it as transactional. I certainly think we're all in this game and we're all sort of looking for the next thing. But I sort of – I loved finding a shared curiosity. I find that if I don't connect with someone, I'm not going to then bother them for a – introduction or an interview or whatever mm-hmm. it is that I'm looking for at the time. Yep. That's a very good point, too. What do you think the toughest career decision you've had to make at this point was? Uh, to Definitely to come to editor-in-chief of Mary Claire. Why? Which is so ironic because it's certainly the best job I've ever had and the, the job I felt that I really am, am meant to do. But um, the timing was terrible. I had been editor-in-chief at Brides for nine months, not even, I mean, seven months when they first called me. And... I had put in huge changes. We'd rehired a whole bunch of people. We, I literally, some of the people I had hired had only been there for a couple of weeks when I ended up giving my notice. Um, so the timing was terrible. And in fact, I actually said no the first time that they asked me. I sort of tossed it over my head. I was like, "There's no way I can leave this job. I just got here. I've just like imp- engaged all these people to come on board for this mission, and I certainly didn't want to leave the company in the lurch. And I just thought it's just too." The timing's terrible. I can't do it. And also taking on another editor-in-chief role right away after not even a year in the first one is going to just – the stress is going to kill my family. And um, so I said no. And they said, all right. And I think it was like a Thursday or Friday. I went home over the weekend and I just 
toss it around and talk to my husband, sought some advice from other people. And I ended up calling them back and saying, if you still want me, I really want the job. Because I realized there are only, these are, there's like 12 of these jobs in the country. And my, my husband always says, it's like the NFL head coach job. There's only so many. And they're only going to come up once in a while. And I've learned since the timing is, the timing is almost always wrong. To have kids, to go on vacation, to make a huge change in your life. There's never going to be like the, the, the clouds part and you have all the things are lined up and everyone's like, welcome to the next big stage of your life. This is exactly <laughs> how you do it. You know, so sometimes you just have to leap. Uh, and so that was definitely the hardest decision and the best decision I've ever made. But how do you differentiate between sometimes you think the timing is wrong and you're, you think, well, I shouldn't do it. And sometimes you think that the timing is wrong and you think, well, I should do it. How do you make that call? I mean, sometimes it's a crapshoot, honestly. But I do think you have to think about the rewards and the what's on the other side of that decision. What, what Beyond the idea that, you know, there's really only 12 posts, mm-hmm. what sealed it for you? Um, I thought to myself, how am I going to feel? I mean, a number, number of things sealed it for for me, my husband's support, some great advice from a former boss, and the thought, how am I going to feel when they announced the person who got the job? Yeah. And I thought, oh, my heart would sink. And I even thought about who it might be. <laughs> <laughs> All great people who have gone on to great success elsewhere. But I just thought I can't sit there on that day of that announcement and not have it be me. So you called them up and what did they say? I think they said, well, come on in. We'll have another conversation. I think there was one more person for me to meet because I hadn't gotten that far into the uh, the interview process mm-hmm. when I declined. So, you know, there were a couple more. I think we had breakfast with a, someone. And there were just a few more conversations. But generally, I was sort of like kind of kind of like close your eyes and jump, you yeah. know, just sort of, OK. And it was really tough. The first my first day as editor in chief of Mary Claire was the first day of New York Fashion Week, which is you know, a lot of fun, but you're running around and you're speaking to reporters and you're, it's very public. You're sitting on the front row and everyone. I felt at the time like everyone's eyes were on me. <laughs> you know, you learn as you get older. People are really only thinking about themselves. No one is paying that close attention to you. I always tell myself this at parties where I feel like I might make a fool of myself talking to people. And I'm like, nope, everyone's focused on what they're doing. Yeah. How they look, who, who they talk to, what they say. Yeah. They're only going to come home basically thinking about like, oh, you know, their own conversations. Everyone's in their own head, which can be quite a, a relief. Actually. Yeah. You know, sitting on the front row, it doesn't seem as a big deal anymore because I know that everyone's just sort of, I don't know, checking their phones or thinking about their next appointment. It's or... still pretty cool, though. And I wonder that actually, given the world that you're in, you're a very fashionable woman. But mm, thanks. She just rolled her eyes, guys. <laughs> but um, do you feel pressure to be on trend all of the time? So something I've learned from our fashion team, which has been fat, really fascinating to me, is that all of the trends and the really out there, you know, uh, crazy trends that have come up. I mean, I'm trying to think of one right now, but just the most out there loud trends are super fun editorially, great for the woman out there who is trying to make a statement every day. But actually, fashion editors don't usually wear those. We photograph them. And I'm not, I don't count myself as a fashion editor, but our fashion team, a lot of them have sort of uniforms. They wear, you know, a great crisp white shirt and a good pair of pants and great shoes and maybe a nice, I don't know, some, an earring. Or, anyway, I've learned so much about that. So actually, no, I have found that it's been really useful to me to see that actually if I just find the great things that work on my body and for my job, and 
then I feel incredibly secure and great. And as long as those things, uh, you know, as long as I like those things and it's quality and over quantity, you know, I don't mm-hmm. have a, I don't have a hundred shift dresses. I do love a good shift dress, but I've got four. You know, and my Only other four, uh, maybe, maybe four or six. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so no, I don't feel pressure to, to be on trend. I don't even. I feel pressure to. Eh, I don't know. The pressure is lessened over time. Certainly, that first fashion week. You know, because I didn't come up through the fashion world, right? So people's funny. It's, they always ask me, "What was your first job in fashion?" And actually, my first job in fashion was being editor in chief of Mary Claire. <laughs> so, so fashion week was pretty new to me. Sitting on the front row and watching all these people and seeing the, that whole scene was really. Uh, a lot to take that first week. And over time, it has become, you know, not only uh, less stressful, but actually really enjoyable. What was the biggest surprise? About Fashion Week? Um, Sure. I was also wondering (laughs) about Mary Claire, but I'm I'm curious about Fashion Week now. Uh, The whole Fashion Week itself was a complete mystery to me. I barely had ever dealt with it before. So uh, to me, the biggest surprise was that there was this entire thing going on. It was almost like I'd like opened a new door and seen, you know, the dream. Have you heard the dream? Yes. It was a New York City dream where you open a door and realize there's a room in your apartment you'd never seen before. When I lived in a studio, one room apartment, I used to constantly have dreams that, wow, wait, how I have so much more space. What is that? That is a New York City dream. That's okay. so true. So I almost felt like that. Like I'd opened this door and wow, there's this whole fascinating world. I had no idea. I mean, I certainly knew there was fashion. I'm not an idiot and I worked at Vanity Fair <laughs> and I remember certain, but I definitely, the ins and outs of it were all kind of new to me. Um, the biggest surprise about Mary, just being editor-in-chief of Mary Claire, um, God, so many. There were so many surprises. Uh, I guess the biggest surprise is how much I really love it. I mean, I knew that it was going to be a challenge and interesting and good for my career and, you know, help me support my family. But I didn't know that I was actually just really going to feel like skipping to work every day. And I hate to sound so Pollyannish. There are certainly good days and bad days. But but it's nice to know that if you find something that you connect with, it can really fuel your your days. What is it that makes your job great for you? Well, I love the subject matter. I love that we talk about empowering women. It really speaks to me. Um, it always has, but I, to actually have that as part of my job is quite a privilege. And um, I really love our team. I love the women and a few men that we work with. There, it seems to attract an amazing quality in people. There's something about the socially conscious reader and the sort of sense of fun, and it not being um, so serious all the time. Except that we do care about the world. It just attracts great people, and you sort of—it's—we've just got a great energy on our floor. I've got the August issue here with me, Jessica Beale on the cover. And speaking of kind of towing this line between serious but also playful, um, there's a focus in this issue on sustainability. And um, you, you've talked about how so many fashion designers have been focused on sustainability for many years now. They mm-hmm. might not have been talking about it that much, but they've been focused on it. And I think just the way that you guys get into it is really interesting, like Green Beauty Now and 100 Eco Chic Must Haves That Help Save the Planet in Your Closet Too. It's you know, you can tell it's not like cram it down your throat, but there's obviously that focus. Yeah. Well, and we certainly, I mean, the sustainability, to take aside for a moment, is just such a huge, important part of fashion right now. And everyone seems to be woken up to it and really creating change. And it's not just lip service. It's really, you know, a lot of, of us didn't know that fashion, the fashion industry is actually one of the biggest polluting industries out there. And it's filled with people who care about the world. So actually, when this came to light, I think a lot of people sort of were like, oh, my God, well, we have to be a force for good. I'm actually wearing a dress right now made from 
about 200 recycled plastic bottles. Really? Yes. It's navy blue, because I know you guys are listening. Who makes this dress? This was, um, so I found the fabric through the Fair Fashion Center, which is an mm-hmm. amazing place down in, downtown in New York City. And I actually, um, with their help, had it made. But That's really plenty cool. of designers are, are using sustainable materials. So plastic bottles? Yes. It, it doesn't who, look plastic, by the way. No, there's there's I love no it. traces of plastic in it. Yeah, it's really not the forum to talk about what I'm wearing because no one can see it. But it's really, <laughs> um, it's a great dress and the Fair Fashion Center is a great resource. Um, but yeah, so we always talk about it, Mary Claire, the fact that it's really fun to be a woman. And we talk about, you know, our duty is to talk to our readers about the art and science of being a woman. And we do care about all the serious issues that, that you know, are out there for women in the world right now. But I always want to, like, we could spend all of our time talking about how hard it is to be a woman. But there are a lot of really wonderful things about it, too. And we really take pleasure in those. A lot of our listeners have been asking me to delve more into the families and how how women are balancing their families. Um, And I know you have two children. Mm -hmm. When you started this job... Did you have anything in place? Were you thinking, obviously, as editor-in-chief, you are pretty much on call 24-7, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. how do you manage all of that? Um, So I had the kids first. (laughs) So it was just not an, you know, there's no, there was no option. If I wanted to be editor-in-chief, I had to do it with kids. So, um, and I did uh, happen to marry a great guy who really wants to be hands-on with the kids too. So we're both, I feel like we have equal partnership in that. I mean, we certainly um, each have demanding jobs, but um, that's crucial. And I'm privileged enough to be able to hire some help, which is, I, you know, I'm very, very lucky and I really couldn't do this without that. But mostly I really find that they balance each other out in a way that I wouldn't have expected. That, you know, raising a family is a huge responsibility and a lot of work and can be very stressful. And running a magazine same thing but they're so opposite that you like I walk into work I'm so psyched to be at work and not think about the stresses of my family and I walk home from work or I walk in the door from work to my family and all the stresses of work immediately just how do you do that I don't know that many people who are capable of the the stresses of work being out the door when you walk home I mean, I it's just it just comes natural. I don't know. I mean, I certainly still. I was telling you, I was in Maine last week. I was on an island in remote Maine, and I was on a picnic, literally on a further remote like rock island off the coast of Maine. And I was getting texts about our cover shoot, and I was really surprised I had even had service. And I just had to sit, and I really need demanded my attention. And I was like, all right, guys, you know, go. They walked around the island with their dad and my father, and I spent forty five minutes on this tiny little rock in Maine dealing with the cover shoot. So, you know, there's some not ideal moments and you can't always separate them. But there's just something about the combination that I think is really helpful, actually. Because otherwise, if I didn't have the demands of children when I walk in, or my husband or whatever the issue of the moment is, um, then I would still be thinking about work. Mm. Yeah. It's just, I I don't even, it's not something that I have tried to do. It's just, and also I have to say, I'm really grateful to the women ahead of me in my old jobs who I could literally, because my mother did not work. And um, watching them and seeing them, how they do it, was really, really helpful. What are some of the biggest things you picked up from them? Well, first of all, the main thing that I picked up from them is that you can do it. I really didn't know. I mean, when I remember when we were thinking about having kids, and I wasn't an editor-in-chief, but I had a pretty stressful job. And I was like, I literally, I just broke down crying. I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I can't imagine. It's already so hard to get out the door. I can't imagine also having to deal with a baby and a nanny or daycare or whatever. And, uh, and my mom said, well, you don't give birth to teenagers. 
Like this, <laughs> there's, there's some. It's just that the pressures of children are very small in the beginning mm. and very. Uh, I don't know. I, and I think actually jobs are similar. I, I don't have children yet. Hopefully someday, but. Jobs when you start are so much more complicated. I mean, there's always going to be complications, but you sort of master things along the way. You master how the systems work. You yes. master how to please different people in different ways. And it's not all, yes, you know, there's sure. that learning curve. And I saw there was something about admin Fridays. Is that something <laughs> you still do? That's a great piece of advice I got from another working mom. So, um yeah, I mean, there's just there's too many. I get. I was telling my new assistant, I said I have about three times as many emails, tasks, etc., to do each day than I can probably do. So one third of them I'm going to get done, one third of them you're going to do, and one third of them are, can wait. You know, so there's just a third of them that we have to sort of dismiss or deal with later, and but I don't want to lose track of them. So, um, how do you advice, decide what can wait? Uh, I just you know it's like I you just know. I mean, for certainly like. Uh, a pressing issue with the cover shoot. <laughs> Cannot wait. It's only a certain finite I'll amount of time. I'll get you next week. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, being invited to something that was going to require some travel in three months can wait until Friday or Monday. Right. So we do actually do admin Mondays now. But so anyway, we have this system where there's a lot of stuff that can wait. And I have sort of three hours blocked out on Mondays um, for the most part. I mean, you know, things infringe on that time. But um, where we just sit down and kind of plow through all the not urgent you know, if something's urgent, you know, and if it's not urgent and it can wait. Um, and it's it just somehow, I guess, you know, that, that, that there's that famous quote about pornography. I don't know, but I know it when I see it. <laughs> Possibly not politically correct to say that. But. <laughs> no, no, no. I think it's a good point. So setting aside some time specifically to get to those things that have had to wait. Yeah. I mean, and not, you know, I've certainly lost a few emails in the way, but yeah, it's, it's just a, a great organizational tool that someone else told me about. I mean, I think the thing about working moms is you're always – any meeting you go to, there's probably a working mom in the room. And at some point or another on the way in or out or in the commute or sitting – you're going to just say, like, so what do you about this? Or how do you get mm-hmm. – you, know, just, you just trade uh, tricks and tricks of the trade. Yeah. When you, when you look at your life, it's, it's pretty public nowadays to be an editor-in-chief, no matter what, especially with – Instagram and and your kids are always adorable. We post adorable pictures of your family on Instagram. How do you balance that part of everything? Yeah, that is tricky. Um, I, and it's certainly something. On the one hand, I was so stressed out about that part of the job. Like I was like, oh my god, everyone's going to be watching me, and how can I handle a public job? And then it sort of, like I was saying earlier, it's just it's it occurs to me that it's not that public a job. Yes, we're sort of, but in the sort of newsfeed of everyone's. Um, attention span. So maybe they pay attention to that post or that thing that you said or for three seconds and they're on to the next news of the day. The news cycles are, so, you know, minute by minute now. So that's kind of a relief and you kind of get used to that feeling that it's somewhat public. But honestly, no one's paying that much attention to anything anymore. So that's a relief. And then there's also, um, you know, I'm not a huge overshare on Instagram of my family once in a while. Uh, and that definitely it's sort of innately being somewhat shy or or an introvert or whatever the word is, it certainly helps you limit your, you know, not out there like dying to be on TV every minute. So it's just sort of a part of a personality thing that I have. Toughest lesson you've had to learn in your career? Oh, what a good question. Um, that you have to be patient, that not everything happens right away. You know, kind of burst out the gate, 22 years old, got to New York City and was like, why aren't I getting the editor-in-chief job? 
And in fact, these things take time. Uh, it's really hard to be patient when you're in your 20s and you want everything. But also the, the great thing that I've learned is that if, you know, little by little, you can make things happen. Do you, I feel the same way, by the way. I wanted everything to happen so much earlier than it did. Do you see in your own life the value in it not happening earlier? I definitely see the value in terms of like managing a, a staff of young people. Um, Management is, you, you do have to experience that in order to get really good at it. I had to. Certainly, I did not come out of college as a great manager. And I certainly wasn't even a great manager when I started. That's something that I really learned over time. And now I really enjoy. But And also just having been there, having been the, you know looking at our, I don't know, 28-year-old editor who wants this, that, or the other thing, I know exactly how that feels. And that's yeah. just time has really helped with that. Um, on the other hand, though, I've been really been impressed by this whole generation of women who have come out starting companies, taking on the world, doing this a lot more, a lot sooner. I mean, I certainly was the product of a generation where it was like you you earn your way, you put in your time, you kind of and I'm kind of refreshed by the idea that actually no, you could just start your own company, turn the world <laughs> on its head. You know, that just didn't wouldn't have occurred to me uh you know, twenty years ago when I got to New York. What's the worst advice you've gotten along the way? So I know that you ask everyone on this program that question and I was really trying to think of it. I honestly think I love advice and I've been a sponge for it, but the stuff that I don't that I don't think is relevant to me, I think has literally just fallen out of my brain in terms of career. Like I've gotten some great advice about careers, like always go on every interview. Um, so many pieces of advice that have helped me that I've kind of forgotten the bad stuff. I will say the one terrible piece of advice that everyone always gives about marriage and relationships is never go to bed mad. I do not agree. I think that you could spend all night trying to hash out an argument that in the morning would seem just meaningless. So sometimes it's okay to go to bed mad. Okay. I like it. I'm glad you said that. I've never heard that one before. And I'm also, I also, um, I, I liked the point about going on every interview, being good advice. Yes. I think it's great advice. A lot of people will not say that. So even if you're not interested in the job, yeah. there's no harm in going and ha- taking a meeting. Yeah. It's also part of you might think you're not interested in the job. Maybe you would be interested in the job. That's sort of I mean, I kind of that's how my editor. I, I was a Vanity Fair for 10 years. I got a couple of other calls, but a couple of other jobs. I would usually go on them and think, hmm, whatever. That was interesting. I like that person. Who knows where they'll be? In, who knows where either of us will be in 10 years? But um, I'm, right now I'm going to stick in my stay with my job because I loved my job at Vanity Fair. So that was my attitude going into that interview to be executive editor at Mary Claire. And I left the interview an hour and a half later. I was like, wow. This is like the coolest job. I had no idea. So you just never know what's going to happen. And also you can go on an interview that means really nothing at the time. And then five years later, you might bump into that person at a different point in their career or life. And that could be a really interesting um, connection at that time. Given that you've now been a leader for a good portion of your career at this point, what's more important to you, being respected or liked? Respected, 100%. Because I've tried trying to be liked. And it is just not a good plan. I mean, you want to have your friends in life. You want to have a good relationship with your husband. And you should probably have some uh, people in your industry who you have good relationships with. But I absolutely, I mean, I don't need to be feared. But I just want people to, um, I want the end product to be the best it can be. And that's my, you have to, or else this, in this climate, in this industry, you're just not going to last. So I'm not at work to make friends. I happen to like a lot of people I work with, but it's, I think it's super important as a leader to have a clear direction, communicate that to everyone, and also to let a few 
bristly people who might disagree with you roll off your back. You cannot stop and worry about pleasing everyone. So it's a waste of time, but it's also just not, it's not good leadership, I don't think. And full and wider. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Rebecca Jarvis. This week's No Limits Entrepreneur was nominated by her cousin, Emily Via, and comes to us from Cape Charles, Virginia. Meredith Resting is the founder and designer of Moonrise Jewelry. Started 15 years ago, Meredith had envisioned a way to make her jewelry-making hobby into a business that would help to create new opportunities for women in her rural community on Virginia's eastern shore. And Moonrise Jewelry was born. Each piece is handmade using eco-friendly materials from their studio in Virginia and is sold in boutiques, galleries, and stores throughout the U.S. and around the world. Emily, thank you for nominating Meredith, and thank you both for being a part of the No Limits community. Want to be featured as a No Limits entrepreneur? Send us your nominations to No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. That's No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of No Limits. If you like what you heard, please make sure to leave us a review. It really does help get the word out. And don't forget, you can follow along with us behind the scenes on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat at Rebecca Jarvis. Special thanks to the team here at ABC that helps make this happen. Taylor Dunn, Michelle Bancardo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, Steve Jones, Annie Osakwe, and Elizabeth Hecht. And join me next Tuesday for an all-new episode of No Limits with Rebecca Jarvis. Until then, take care, be well. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.